2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, We then, as workers, together with him, that is God, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. During the last five chapters of 2 Corinthians that we've studied uh, up to this point, we've looked at really um, the, the answer to the question, what is real Christianity? What does it mean to be real or authentic uh, in our faith and in our walk with God? And Paul, using himself as the object lesson, as it were, and giving testimony to some of the things that God has done in his life and some of the ways that God has manifested himself through Paul's life, Paul has really answered that question. And uh, an interesting thing happens to a person when they're born again. You know, we, we walk a certain amount of time in the world and um, different for everyone. Some people come to know Christ in their young years, some in their teenage years, some later on in life. But there comes a point when uh, there's a definite um, repentance. So you change directions. God interrupts the life and he comes into it and there's a change. The Holy Spirit comes inside and the lights are turned on. The word of God begins to make sense and uh, um, life makes sense. And it's, it's just it's being born again. If you, if you know Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you come into that experience, it isn't, doesn't take long to you, you kind of look around and you think about your life and where it's been and where it's going. And you ask the question, okay, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I know Jesus. My sins are forgiven. Now what? I'm still here. I, I've been born into this relationship with God. But for what cause? For what purpose? You know, what am I supposed to do now? Do I just live out the rest of my life on earth and then I go to heaven? Why doesn't he just take me there now? I mean, I'm saved and my sins are forgiven. I can't earn my way in. I can't add to the finished work of Christ. So why am I still here? What in the world is the purpose that God has for me uh, in this life? Now, once we are born again, there really are only three things uh, that, 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 that God calls us to. It's a very simple life in the, in the sense. And, and they are, first of all, that we're to know God. That's what happens once we're born again, is that we're not brought into a religion, we're not brought into church, we're not brought into a lifestyle, we're brought into a relationship. And so we begin a relationship with him, and he calls us to know him. And so we delve into his word, and we, we, we are introduced to prayer, and, uh, and, and there's a life that begins in this relationship that we have with God, and that's part of his purpose. Part of the reason that we're here is that we would know him. And then secondarily then, once we know him, he wants us to grow, to grow in that relationship, to grow in our faith, to grow in his presence and grow in our sanctification, the, the, the amount of our lives that are surrendered to him. He wants that to be growing constantly. And that, that's part of what he's called us to. But the interesting thing about both of those things, knowing God and growing in God, we don't have to be on the earth to do those things. We can do those things in heaven, just the same. It says in heaven, we're going to know him even as we're known. There can be no greater knowing of God than once we're there. And so that's not something that's reserved just for this earth. Concerning our growing, we're going to be growing for all of eternity. The Bible says that for the ages to come, we'll be searching out the depths and the riches of his love, trying to understand and, and wrap our, our minds around this infinite God 
that created all things and that made us and that died for us. And why would he do that? And for all of eternity, we'll be growing in that understanding. And so knowing God and growing in God are not things reserved for the earth. So why are we here? There's only one thing left, and that's that we're to go. That there's a reason that we are on this planet left here by God. Because there's something for us to do here beyond just knowing him, which is important and cannot be neglected. And growing in him, which again is something that will happen if we, if we know him, we will grow in him. But there's also a duty, there's a task, there's something for us to do. And the wise Christian comes early in their Christian life to a place where they ask the question and they say, what in the world, God, do you want me to do? And the answer very simply comes to every Christian at the beginning in the form of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, the last three verses of the chapter, a passage that we know as the Great Commission. Some of the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before going into heaven, he said, this is what you're to do. This is, as it were, the mission statement of your future and of everyone who will be born into this thing called the church. This is what you're called to. And he said, go ye therefore into all nations, teaching them, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Very simple. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's so uh, compact and summarized, it's just that one tiny little red chunk at the end of Matthew chapter 28, and we can almost become so familiar with it, we just, okay, well, that's the Great Commission. But really, that's the mission statement for our lives the moment that we're born again, that we come into this thing that's called the church. And so we read that and we say, all right, it's like we're handed this mission statement. It's like we're, we're hired into this company or we join this family and, and now the king of it hands us this sheet. He says, here, this is what you're to do. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. We look at that and go, okay, this is definitely going to be one of those situations where I'm going to fake it till I make it because... <laughs> I have no idea what this means. How do you make a disciple? How do you, what does this mean, baptizing them? And then what is a baptism? What does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. And, and now here I am, all of a sudden I've been given a badge, a job, a commission, something that I'm supposed to do. What do I do with it? And in a sense, the rest of the New Testament from that point is an expansion of what that mission actually is. As we learn of God through what's recorded on the pages, what Jesus taught and then what Paul taught and <clears throat> what's recorded for us in it, that's where we grow into an understanding. And as we mature, we say, oh, yes, this is what that commission is. And this is what my place in that is as we understand. Now, Paul, in chapter 5, the chapter that we studied last week, in verse 20 does something that Jesus did not do, and that's this, is that he actually put a title to that position. He took the commission that's given to every Christian, and he gave it a title, and he called it ambassador. He said that we then, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, as ambassadors for Christ, beseech you or pray you, God beseeching you through us that you would be reconciled or brought back into a right relationship with God. But he calls us, you and I as Christians, ambassadors for God. So the Great Commission 
worked out in our lives gives to us the duty and the title of an ambassador. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who's a citizen of one country or kingdom that's been sent as an, <coughs> excuse me, an emissary into another kingdom as a representative of the king. And so what we are essentially is that we are citizens of heaven that are living abroad on earth. And the purpose of our lives is that we live to serve King Jesus and his purposes here and to represent him in a world that's alienated from him with the mission and purpose of bringing a lost world back into fellowship with a holy God. That's what we're called to do. And so we live to serve his purposes. Now, as we come into chapter 6, the Apostle Paul still building on this idea that we are called to be ambassadors for him, representing him and serving him. What he does is he gives to us one of the greatest reasons why Christians fail to bear fruit in this calling that we have. I mean, if we look around and we, we think about what's being done in the name of Christ around the world and we look at the amount of Christians that there are, and you think that 12 men turn the world of their day upside down. And you think of how many Christians are in the world today and what could be taking place versus what is. You say, why does it seem that there's so little? Often we think about our own lives and we think, you know, yes, I'm born again. Yes, I'm called of God. Yes, I'm, I'm an ambassador. I've been given the commission. But yet when I look at my life in honesty, I, I see that there's very little fruit that comes out of it in terms of reaching other people with this message or with this gospel or making an impact for his name. Why? Why is that? Why are we missing it? And the Apostle Paul answers that question here as we go into chapter 6. And he begins it with this statement that really sets it up. He says, we then as workers, that's fellow workmen, together with him, or that is with God, beseech you also, speaking to the Corinthian church, and you can just put yourself right in that you, because you and I are the you that the Holy Spirit is speaking to through this passage tonight. And so we, notice that word at the beginning of the verse, because what Paul is essentially saying there is that there's no difference between me, the Apostle Paul, and you, the common Christian in Corinth. And that's something that we must understand. Is that when God looks at the broad swath of Christendom, he doesn't segregate people into the categories of preachers and people. He doesn't see pastors and then everybody else. He sees children of himself, sons and daughters. That's what we all are, every one of us. And Paul in his own life was well aware that he was no different than the Christians in Corinth, though he had responded to the call that God had placed upon his life. And so it's not a us and you. He doesn't say we as the apostles, you. He says, no, we then, plural, all of us, we then as workers or fellow workers together with him. If we've been sent as ambassadors from him, then we're in a partnership with him in order to fulfill and complete our task. He says, workers together with him, we beseech you also, and here's the, the beseeching or the imploring or the begging, is that you would not receive the grace of God in vain. You want to circle those words because it becomes the theme of the entire chapter. Everything that he's going to say from this point forward revolves around this idea that there is the potential that a Christian person who ends up in heaven and that is completely saved 
and loved by God and, and their sins are, are washed away as far as the east is from the west, but yet they could come potentially to the end of their life and the assessment of it is that the grace of God in one sense was wasted on them. Not in the sense that, that God didn't love them or want to forgive their sins, but the grace of God has a farther reaching purpose in our lives than just to save us. If it was just to save us, then he would have taken us to heaven immediately. But grace is given to us for other purposes as well, for us to fulfill and complete what it is that he has called us into. And what Paul is saying here is that it's possible that you can live a Christian life and that the grace of God could be then given in vain. Vain means empty, nothing, or valueless. Or to, 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 to receive the grace of God in vain would be to make it nothing or for, to let it serve no purpose. Or it is even possible that the grace of God given to us could have a negative impact in the world around us. All of those things are possible. Now, when he uses the words grace of God there in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, he's using it as a summary statement to encapsulate everything that he has talked about in the previous five chapters. Everything that God does in the life in the new covenant through the blood of Christ and through the giving of the Holy Spirit to his church, he calls that the grace of God here. That all of those things are the byproduct of grace. None of it is earned. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And we receive grace as a gift in our lives because of the blood, not because of anything that we have done. And so everything that Paul has spoken thus far, and I'll spare you the summary of it. You can go back and read it or, or listen again. But everything that God has done and is doing for us is his grace. And to do it in vain here implies that the purpose of that grace being given to our lives isn't being brought to its proper conclusion. That is that God saves us and leaves us in the world for a reason but that that reason is never realized, that the Christian never bears fruit. Jesus said <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom parables, when he talked about um, the parable of the sower, he said that there were some where the seed fell into the heart and it germinated quickly, but it fell among rocks. And so as soon as there was persecution or tribulation, they just immediately fell away. That's grace of God in vain. The grace of God coming into someone's life, they're awakened. They receive it. The seed germinates. Something happens. But there's no depth in that life. And, and when the difficulty of being a Christian arises, they just say, forget about it. I'm done. I'm finished. That's receiving grace in vain. But Jesus talks more. And he says that there was other seed that fell among thorns. And it's probably among the four soils that Jesus mentions in that chapter, the saddest of all of them. Because there was nothing wrong with the soil. There was no birds that were robbing the seed. There was no rocks that were impeding its growth or its depth. There was nothing wrong with the soil and, and, and nothing that would keep that, that, that seed from germinating and bearing as much fruit as, as it's possible to bear. But it doesn't bear fruit, and here's why. Because the thorns grow up with the word and they choke it so that, Jesus said, it became or becomes unfruitful. And then he interprets by saying that the thorns are the cares of this life, the desire for riches, and the lusts for other things. So the worries of the day that so quickly pervade and, and, and choke us out, 
the desire to have things that maybe it isn't the will of God for us to have or to have things that for us become a distraction to the point where kingdom business is put on the back burner and we're living primarily for the things of this world and then secondarily and eventually not at all for the things of his life. And the person who is in that place is received the grace of God in a sense in vain. It isn't necessarily that they're going to end up in hell or that they're not saved, but it's that they've wasted the purpose for which God left them behind and they've blown an opportunity that they uniquely had to serve God in the way that he had called them to. And that's true for every one of us in our lives is that no one else can do for God as an ambassador what he's called you to do. As unique as your face and your fingerprint is the call of God that he has upon your life and what he wants to do and the fruit that he wants to bear within your life. And if for some reason something comes into your life as a Christian and chokes that so that it never comes into fruition, then you can come to the end of it and there can be the testimony of your life that the grace of God was held in vain. That he gave you the gift, the opportunity, the equipping, everything that you needed to do it, but it wasn't accomplished. And Paul says, I beseech you that you would not receive the grace of God in vain, that the fruit would be ruined. And the ruining of good fruit is the context of which Paul is talking to the Corinthians. Now, receiving the grace of God in vain usually happens in one of two ways. The first of those, um, when fruit goes bad, the first of those, it can happen through legalism, especially when it can happen to a church. That's what Paul wrote Galatians about. The legalists had come in. They had made things so regulatory. They had, they had imposed sacraments and things that God had never intended. They had made God so restrictive and so stringent beyond what is written in the word of God that the people there had become so cold that Paul said, I'm afraid for you lest my preaching has been in vain. It was legalism that was written to the Galatians. They had front slid, as it were. That is that they had added to the word of God and they had misrepresented or were misrepresenting God by making him beyond what he is, restrained, restrictive. The other way, and it's the problem in Corinth, is not legalism, but rather liberalism. And liberalism in the Christianity, not in a political sense, don't get confused, I know it's an election year, is when you remove the restraint and you remove the boundaries that God has placed within his word, and you remove the distinction of what makes a Christian separate from what everyone else is in the world, and you smear the colors of God, and you cause them to become blended with the world to the point where there's no distinction at all between what is called Christian and what is not. They look exactly the same. And so you can live alongside that person. You can work alongside that person. You can uh, rec- recreate with that person and, 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 and never know that there's anything different about them because they are so blended with the world and their behavior and the way that they are that there's no longer any distinction at all. They have clouded the lines and they've watered down the message or the gospel uh, to a point where grace has become in vain because it's misrepresented God. And this is the Corinthian problem, this idea of liberalism in the thing. And the church in Corinth had become so liberal in their behavior that they had left their witness, they were misrepresenting God, and thus they had become bad ambassadors. 
It's interesting that you'll often read in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, where God gives a command to a leader or to a person, and he says, do not turn to the right hand or to the left. Have you ever read that before in the Bible? It comes up often. And, and you can look at that and you can say, well, God, you say that all the time, but you never really define it exactly. What, what does it mean to turn to the right hand or to the left and things? Well, for your mind, you can just think of it this way. Same way that we kind of define politics. You can define spiritual uh, turning to the right hand or to the left. To turn to the right in spiritual things, you can call it the restrictive right, is where you just become so legalistic and so pharisaical in your Christian experience. Why don't you fast like the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees? Why is it that you're smiling and joyful and not miserable like the rest of us? And you know, that's the rest- you turn to the right hand. You've made God something he's not. The other side is the liberal left in a spiritual sense. And that's where you remove the restrictions that God has imposed and you blur the lines that he has said don't cross and you've made Christianity something it's not because you've made things allowable that God has said are not. And to do that is to turn to the left. God says don't turn to the right and don't turn to the left. Well, how do we do that? We walk in the word. Because God lays out exactly who he is and exactly who we are on the pages of his scripture and he gives us the leading of his Holy Spirit. And as we obey the leading and promptings of his spirit as directed by his word, we're guaranteed to walk the narrow path up the middle as good ambassadors rightly representing God, not restraining beyond what he does and yet not blurring the lines beyond what he does, but walking in obedience to him. And when you do that, it makes you a good ambassador. And Paul is saying that we are workers together with him. And so I'm begging you, Corinthian church, and listen, Calvary Chapel, Hudson Valley, that lives in a society that reflects more Corinth than it does Galatia. And where if there's going to be a problem in our midst, it's going to be a Corinthian problem and not a Galatian problem. Listen, Paul, the Spirit of God, would implore you the same way tonight, beseeching as ambassadors for Christ, as those that have been saved by grace through faith, as those that have been recipients of God's goodness in the shedding of the blood of his son upon a cross so that our sins could be forgiven, the just for the unjust, our sins being placed upon him and his righteousness being placed upon us and the recipients of such grace, the spirit of God would beg, do not receive the grace of God in vain. More, Paul, explain, expand, Please help me understand how can I do this. I'm so glad you asked him to do that because he's about to. How shall we live so as not to cheapen grace or misrepresent God? Notice what Paul says in verse 2. He says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored. That just simply means helped or come alongside to help you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, this verse serves for us tonight as we read it two purposes in terms of understanding. Number one is this, is that Paul has just made the statement in verse one that we are fellow workmen with God. That is that we are in a partnership with our father with, for his purpose of reaching lost souls. And so part of Paul's point in quoting this verse here is to prove what he just said. Because some people will say, what? I'm a partner with God? He's working with me? I'm working with him? How is that possible? Well, listen to what Paul says. He says, 
For he says, I have heard you in the time accepted and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. In other words, notice this is how it works, is that as we, and that's we, not just me, but we, go and share the message of Christ to someone who's lost, on our end, what we are doing is that we're being the mouthpiece conveying the message. But what God is saying here is that while we're being the mouthpiece conveying the message, he by his spirit on his end is working from inside that person, opening their understanding and knocking on their conscience, bringing conviction of sin and the reality of heaven and hell and reasoning with them in their mind in a way that you and I can't see to bring that person to the place of salvation. And so that's how the co-laboring or fellow workmanship works. We bring the message. God brings the conviction. We speak. He saves. We can't save anyone. All we can do is faithfully declare as he's asked us. And God can then use our words to bring conviction and salvation into the life of the person who's listening to us. And so that's the first reason Paul uses this verse here is to say, hey, yes, this is true. We are fellow workmen with God. We preach. He helps in the day of salvation. The other reason that Paul brings this verse out is to explain or describe the urgency associated with receiving salvation. Notice what he says in the strength of the language. For he saith, speaking of God, God says, I have heard you in a time accepted. Now, if you have a pen, underline or circle that word for time. Because the word that he uses there is not speaking of a time chronologically. That is, you know, at a moment in in a span or a spectrum. But rather, it's a time period. The word in the Greek is kairos, and it speaks of a period of time. What he's saying is that I have heard you in a period of time wherein you're accepted. We live right now, church, in a period of time called the age of grace. And in the age of grace, the door is wide open for people to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. From the time that he died on the cross and rose again, the doors of heaven were opened. And right now, during this period of time, anyone who will come to him by faith and ask for the forgiveness of their sins and for the gift of eternal life, they will be given that gift by grace. That is the accepted time. And so today, right now, we are still in that period, that time. And so God's saying, listen, I heard you during that accepted time. Now, it's important that we understand that because it's not always going to be an accepted time. The age of grace will come to a close. The door wherein God will receive sinners freely is not going to last forever. It's a period of time that exists right now during this period that we're in. So he says, I've heard you in an acceptable time, but there's a second mention of time in this verse. He moves on and he says, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. That word time is chronos or chronology. And he says, now is the day of salvation. Meaning this, is that if God knocks on your heart, that is the moment and time that you're to come to him. This Broad brush picture of time is the age of grace wherein you can come. But when God comes and knocks on your heart in the form of a message that you hear or the evangelist that speaks to you one-on-one and gives you the message of salvation and tells you that you need to know Jesus, 
And in that moment that God visits and works on the inside and he does it for every person, that is the time that you respond to his call of salvation. Because you are promised no other time to do it. The only moment that is absolutely sure and guaranteed to every one of us is this moment right now. The past is gone. You can't get it back. And tomorrow is uncertain. You have no idea if you will even be alive three hours from this moment right now. But what you do have is now. And God says that if he knocks on your heart, that this is the moment, this is the time, that you open up your heart to him. God has an incredible track record of interrupting lives, doesn't he? And he doesn't ask for permission too often, does he? You read the pages of scripture and God came to Noah and said, Hey, Noah, I've got something for you to do. That was quite an interruption. I'm sure Noah had something to do that day. But his life changed because God interrupted it. Abraham, interrupted by God. Jacob, interrupted by God. Joseph, interrupted by God. David, interrupted by God. God interrupts life. He's God. He has the authority and the ability to do it. And it's always for our good. But if we put it off and say, God, I'm not willing to be interrupted, then not only do we miss it on salvation, we miss out on the very purpose for our lives and what we were made for. We were made by God. We were made for God. And our joy is in his will and plan for our lives. And so we're called to respond. Felix, a man of great accomplishment, a governor witnessed to by Paul, listened to his words and said, Paul, I will hear you at a future moment when I have a convenient season. Do you know that convenient season never came for Felix? He rejected in the now and he lost his chance forever. It tells us of Herod that he heard John the Baptist gladly, that he loved listening to the preaching of John and it caused him and motivated him to do many things, but he put it off. And eventually, Satan got his hooks on Herod. And Herod, based on his pride and his unregenerate heart, had John the Baptist murdered, sealing his own damnation. Why? Because he put off the urgency of now. If God knocks on your heart, when is the time to respond? Now. Now is the accepted time. Now. Now, all of that's in parentheses, if you notice in your Bible, because he's using it as a proof text for verse 1. But now he expands as we come into verse 3 on this concept of receiving the grace of God in vain and how not to do it. Notice what he says. He says, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. One of the ways that we can receive the grace of God in vain is if we cause people to stumble based upon what they see or observe within our lives. The distance between what we profess we are and what we actually are should always be getting smaller the longer that we walk with Christ. It should never be getting wider, longer. It, it, there is a distance between what we profess to be and what we are. Did you know that? It, it's the reason why the, 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 the world looks in and they say the church is filled with hypocrites. That is a true statement. That could be scripture. You could put that right in the Bible because it's true. You know why? Because not one of us is what we're supposed to be or what we profess we are. What does the Bible call us? Little Christs, doesn't it? The Bible says that he sees us glorified and justified. He sees us without spot or wrinkle. That's what God sees. That's what we are. But it's not what we are. But that distance between those two things should ever be narrowing and never widening. 
And what Paul is saying to us here is that as much as it's in our power, we should never give the outside world an unnecessary occasion to look at our lives and say, that's why I shouldn't be a Christian. Because you are professing Christ, but look at the way that you're living. There's nothing in your life that's Christian about it. You're the same as everyone else. Worse than that is when someone looks at your life and says, I will be a Christian because it means I don't have to change anything because you're not. And Paul's saying we should give no offense in anything that the ministry of this New Testament be not blamed. But rather, he says in verse four, in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. Now, do you notice that Paul calls every one of us ministers of God? There's no difference in the mind of God. We are all ministers or servants of this covenant. We're all in the ministry. And notice what he says to the minister. He says, in all things, we're to approve ourselves as such. Now, if you have a King James Bible, you see that word approving? You see what the word that's tucked in there is the word prove. You see it? That's what he's saying there. He's saying prove through your lifestyle that you are in fact a Christian and that you are called and being used of God, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. Now, from this point, Paul is going to launch into three lists. The first list is going to be a list of words that all start with the word in. He's going to say in patience, in afflictions, in necessities, and so on. He's going to go on. Then the second list is going to start with the word by. When we get down to verse six, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering. Then the third list of words is all going to start with the word as. Once you get to verse, uh, the second half of verse eight, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well known. And what Paul essentially here is going to give to us in these three lists is he's going to give to us three things. Number one, and pay attention because this is really where we need to hear God's voice tonight. Number one is that he's going to tell us the situations of life wherein we prove that we are the real thing. So it's in these situations that it's proved that you and I are the real deal in in, in this thing that we call Christianity. And that's going to be the first list. These are the situations. So the first list is all situations wherein it proves that we're Christians or Christ-like. Then the second list of things, the by list, is the tools or the graces that are given to us by God necessary in order for us to be what we're supposed to be in the circumstances that we're in. So the first list is the situations. The second list is the tools that we need in those situations. And then the third list or the as list is the mindset or the attitude that we need in order to be successful. And so those are the three lists that Paul's going to give to us here. So what situations does God bring you and I into in which we are proved to be Christians, real Christians? Notice what they are. In, he says in the second half of verse four, in much prosperity, in comfort, in luxury. Why are you guys looking at me like that? What, what version of the Bible are you reading? In the blessing that God brings upon your life. In health. In, wait, let me, let me put my glasses on. Notice the situations that he gives. He says, in much patience. 
in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, that's being whipped, persecuted, in imprisonments, in tumults, those are storms, unstable situations, confusion, labors, in watchings, in fasting. I think this is the longest list of 10 things that exist in the Bible to look at and have to think through and understand and realize that it's in these things that the reality of Christ in us is proved to those that are looking. Notice the first, he says patience. What does it mean here? What does he mean by patience? Because he's going to bring up patience again in the second list when he talks about long-suffering in verse 6. So what does he mean by patience in verse 6? Here's what he means. He means when you find yourself in situations where you're waiting on God or waiting for God to come through within your life. Now, how many of you have ever been in a circumstance like that? Where you're looking at your life and things aren't happening the way that you thought or the promise of God isn't coming through the way that you hoped. And as you sit in that place, you think, God, where in the world are you? And you're hanging out to dry in a situation that you don't want to be in and that you don't like. And everybody knows that you're in that situation and that you don't like it. It's in that situation that you have an opportunity to let Christ be seen in your life that he is real and that you are a true follower of his in patience, situations where God hasn't come through yet, in afflictions, in distresses all of those things talk about pain and suffering times that you're being choked out that you're under pressure under pressure when you're in a narrow place where there's asphyxiation spiritually or extreme affliction he talks about necessities or times that you're in need things that you 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 that that you need things that you don't have then in persecutions he talks about stripes or wounds that are caused by persecution imprisonments Dungeons. How many of you have ever felt like you're in a dungeon in your Christian life? Sometimes a dungeon isn't a dungeon like Paul was in when he was held in the stocks. Sometimes a dungeon can be a pile of laundry that's never ending. And you think, what in the world am I not going to be chained to this pile of laundry any longer? Sometimes a dungeon can be a desk and a pen on that desk and a legal pad that you can't get away from, that you would long with everything in you to be free of. But it's a circumstance, it's a situation that God has you in. It's a dungeon, as it were. It's something that you don't want to be in, but you're in it. A marriage can feel like a dungeon sometimes. Sometimes dealing with a child during a particular season of their life, it can feel like a dungeon situation. Tumults or storms, things that flare up suddenly when you're not expecting, and all of a sudden the whole world is just kind of turned upside down on you. In labors, it, it, it speaks of intense labor with trouble and with toil. In watchings, which is sleeplessness, and in fastings. All of those things that Paul lists there in those verses are the places that are the proving ground for the reality of our Christian experience. Now, isn't it interesting that we spend so much time trying to get away from those things? And sometimes we can even think, God, if I'm a son, if I'm a daughter of yours, then why am I going through this? There's a reason. Here's why. Because first of all, it's refining you it's purifying and changing you, drawing you closer to him. But it's also revealing Christ in you to the world that's watching you go through those things. See, it isn't in our prosperity or in our abundance or when everything is going well for us or when things are easy that the world looks on and says, yeah, I need Christ to save me from my sins. But when they can see in us going through things that are too heavy for us, but yet we're not crushed in those things, 
Then they look on and their attention is aroused and they say, well, why is it that you're doing so well in this under which what I would be crushed by if I was going through the same? And for us, then it becomes an opportunity, maybe, for us to be a good witness for Christ if we allow him to. There's a second list. See, when we're in those circumstances where we have the opportunity to serve him as an ambassador, there's graces and tools that we need that are bigger than ourselves. Notice the second list. He says in verse six, by now, the first tool that we're to use in those circumstances is pureness. It means cleanness. Now, let me ask you a question. When you start to go through a hard time, what is it that you look to or toward or for in order to get a little bit of rest or relaxation or ease or to take away some of the pain of what you're going through. Paul says it absolutely must be something that is categorized under the the title of pureness. Because the world is looking what we're going to hold on to as a vice when we're going through a storm. And if we're using the same types of things the world is using, then there's no distinction between us and them, and thus we've blown the opportunity to be an ambassador in that moment. And so he's saying that we're not to compromise our cleanliness spiritually when we're going through the hard things. We must maintain purity. He says, second of all, by knowledge. Knowledge is intelligence or understanding. It's knowing what we're going through and why. It's not freaking out because we're in a circumstance that's painful, but it's having enough wisdom and understanding spiritually to realize that God has led us into those things as an opportunity to let Christ shine within our lives. Paul says in the first few verses of Romans chapter 5, he says, therefore, having peace with God, we're justified, or through Jesus Christ, through whom we're justified, he says, we have received grace, and he says that we glory in tribulation." Because we know that tribulation works patience and patience works experience and experience works hope and hope does not make ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. He says that tribulation actually produces hope in the mature Christian because they realize that God is doing something through it. That's the knowledge that Paul is talking about here. He's saying do it by knowledge. Understand, listen, can I tell you something? In case you didn't know this, now you do. If you're a Christian here tonight, you're going to suffer as a Christian. And when it comes, don't be surprised. Peter and James both wrote in their epistles, don't count it strange, the strange thing concerning the fiery trial that's come into your life. Don't think that just because you're a Christian, it's going to be easy. Jesus even said that the sun shines and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We all go through things in this life. The world is crushed under it and can bring it to no reason. You and I stand under it and we know the reason for it. And so he says, in, or by knowledge, <coughs> excuse me. Then he says, thirdly, with long suffering or by long suffering, with patience the second time, and it will endure it by kindness. How many of you, how many of us feel kind when we're going through these things? By the Holy Ghost, absolutely essential. We can't stand under the weight of trials without the Holy Ghost. By love, unfeigned. We have to show love when we're going through it. These are the things that demonstrate Christ to a lost world. By the word of truth, by standing upon the promises of God, by holding out in faith, by the power of God that he only can give into a life that he will not give in a life that doesn't belong to him. By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. When you're tempted to become restrictive or legalistic or liberal, 
on the right hand and on the left. There it is. He says, by the armor that God gives in these things, imparted to us in order that we might obey, we're to use it, employ it. He says, also by honor and by dishonor in, in verse eight. And that means two things. It means number one is that when, when something is honorable, we're to give it credit for the honor that it is. But when something is dishonorable, we don't have the right to remain silent just because it's the easier thing to do. That if there's something that's dishonorable, then in the midst of whatever we're going through, we have to call it what it is and be faithful to the word of God. If something's honorable, we'll say so. But if it's dishonorable, we also have to say so. It also applies to us personally. There's times when you and I will be honored for our Christian lives. And there's times that we'll be dishonored for our Christian lives. There's going to be people that love to see the witness of Christ at work in us. And there's going to be people that hate to see the witness of Christ at work within us. And we have to be the same either way. What? What are we to be? We're ambassadors. And so if someone honors our faith, what are we to do? We're to honor him that sent us. What you see and what you desire to honor is not in me, it's in him. And then we're also to realize that when someone hates you because of your faith in Christ, they're not hating you, they're hating him. We're ambassadors, we serve him. It's by honor and by dishonor. By evil rapport and by good rapport. That is that when people speak evil of us or when they speak well of us or when something is to be evil spoken of or when something is well to be spoken of, that we're to have God's perspective towards it. We're not to waver in our convictions just because life is hard during that season. These are all tools and graces that God provides. Now, I'll pause right here to say this. If you're afflicted tonight and, and in a room with five people in it, there's people in that room that are being afflicted. If you, Whatever it is that you're going through here tonight, as you just look over this list of, of graces, all these by words that he lists right here, if there's any one of those things that you need right now to be a faithful witness for Christ, don't wait till the end. Just right now, in the quietness of your heart, ask God for it. God, I need kindness in, in this circumstance that I'm in because I don't have it. And I can't represent you rightly in this circumstance if I don't have kindness. God, give me what I don't have and what I can't produce. God, I need power by your Holy Spirit to stand up under the weight of this that I'm going through right now because if you don't supply that power, I am not going to be a faithful ambassador for you, which you've called me to be. Ask him right now to do it because there's not one thing on this list that's given to us right here that you and I are capable of producing apart from him. Not one. Ask him for it. Then he goes on. Third list is the mindset that we're to have as ambassadors for him in this world, not receiving grace in vain. He says in verse nine, he says, as unknown and yet well-known. As dying and behold, we live as chastened and not killed. As unknown is in the context of this world. Do you know that nobody in the world knows who you are? You know, you and I do not fall into the category of the who's who in this world. We all, every one of us, fall into the category of the who's he or the who's she. Nobody knows who we are in this world. But did you know that you are well known in heaven? That if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, not only was there a party thrown in your honor in heaven on the moment that you gave your life to Christ, but there is a whole entire kingdom that is working to serve God's purpose through you here and now. Remember when Paul was 
Actually, I forgot where he was. And, and he cast out the demon. I think he was in Ephesus, but um, he, he, you know, was, was working there and serving the Lord. And there was a whole bunch of people that were watching Paul's ministry. They were exorcist Jews, vagabonds. And they wanted to do what Paul did. And so they found a demon-possessed man. And they went up to him and they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And the demon responded to the person and said, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? And then that demon just beat the living daylights out of those men and left them, left them naked and scouring and running away in this whole thing. But, but understand this, is that your name in the spiritual realm is very well known. Though no one on earth might know who you are, God knows who you are. And God's kingdom knows who you are. And the kingdom of darkness knows who you are. And you can be rest assured of this, is that your picture is in two places. Number one, it's in the boardroom of heaven, wherein God is working out his plan and his work within your life, but that your picture is also somewhere on the boardroom of hell, and that there is a strategy being hatched, a plan right now, that in some way, if Satan can bring something into your life that would cause you to be branded, one in whom the grace of God has been bestowed in vain, that he will do it. Understand that. As unknown, yet well-known. As dying, and behold, we live. As chastened, but yet not killed. As sorrowful, and there's plenty to be sorry about in this world, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. And this is the mindset or the attitude that you and I are to have as we serve Christ as ambassadors in this thing. This world is not our home. And therefore, the things that we go through here are not serving our eternal comfort. Our eternal comfort is when we get there. What we go through here is in order to serve him in the right way. And so Paul says, don't receive the grace of God in vain, but in all things represent him, that the ministry is not blamed. And it's in the hard things where it matters. And God supplies the tools that we need to do it. And the mindset that we have is that this world is not our home. And if you keep that mindset, you're going to be all right. Then he breaks into this thing in verse 11. He says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. You are not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own bowels or your own hearts. Now for a recompense or a repayment in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Evidently, there was some accusation that they were saying, Paul is so closed off to us that he's untouchable. And Paul's saying, no, I'm not. He's saying, listen, I'm speaking these things to you because I love you and my heart is open to you. And he's saying, reciprocate that same love back to me. Give it back. He's saying, be also enlarged. And then he says in verse 14, carrying on with the theme, he says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial or, 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 or you know, common ground? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. He says there, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's a picture from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, verse 10, where God commanded in the law that they were not to yoke together an ox and a donkey. 
That's what God said. He said, if you're going to have a farm and you're going to yoke two animals together, don't yoke together an ox and a donkey. Now, the reason why you would yoke two oxen together or two donkeys together is for the sake of productivity. If you have two oxen and you yoke them together, you can get a lot of work done. If you have two donkeys and you yoke them together, you can get a lot of work done. But if you yoke a donkey and an oxen together, you ain't getting nothing done. Because they're both going to want to go in a different direction. There's not going to be an agreement between those two animals. They're completely different in their nature. And therefore, you will get nothing done. And in this context of not receiving the grace of God in vain and failing in our ambassadorship, Paul is saying, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, that has its application in many different ways areas. Obviously, the the most obvious would be marriage. If a believer marries an unbeliever, then what you have is you have two different people with two different standards and two different um, worldviews seeking to be productive in two totally different fields. There's just not going to be any common ground there for you to be productive in your Christian life. You cannot be a successful ambassador if you willingly choose as an un, uh, as a believing person to marry an unbeliever. The, the things that you're going to allow in your home, the, the way that you're going to raise your children, the things that are going to be seen on your TV screen, the ways that you uh, um, uh, seek comfort in difficult times, all of those things are going to be on polar ends of, of a spectrum and there's no agreement b- between them at all. It has its application in business. It has its application in many of the relationships of life. Paul's saying, listen, it's not going to work out. He actually gives five places where you can't be unequally yoked together. He says, first of all, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? You can't take righteousness, mix it with unrighteousness, and call it something productive. It's, they're, 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 they're anti one another. They're opposing. He says, second of all, what communion has light with darkness? It doesn't, the, the two things can't mutually coexist. What concord has Christ and Satan? It doesn't get any more opposite than that. One is light, one is darkness. What part has he that believes, that's a Christian, with an infidel or an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? You wouldn't bring an idol into the temple. They're completely contrary to each other. There's no agreement with them at all. And what Paul is saying is this, as we go on. He says, Verse 17, wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. If we want to be successful ambassadors for Christ, then it is essential that there be a distinction between what we are and what the world is. And that was what the Corinthians needed to hear. That was their problem. They had become so worldly that they had lost their witness on account of their worldliness. And Paul is reminding them here is that part of this ambassador thing is that we're to be separate. We're not to live like the world. Every one of us here as Christians knows what light is and what darkness is. Every one of us here knows what's right and we know what's wrong. And the more that we grow in the word of God, we know it more and more. And we are called to absolutely be separate. We're not to do things the way the world does them. We're to be separate from the world. When Georgia and I got married, um, which is going on 17 years ago, uh, 
we we were just Christians at that time. I wasn't Pastor Nick, and you know we we didn't have the family or the the life that we have at all. We we were just newly saved Christians that God really got a hold of our hearts. And um, you know, for the first year of our marriage, like we were just so into church. We were in church as much as we possibly could be, and so into the Bible and just so into spiritual things that. Um, you, you know, like we didn't party, we didn't go to clubs, like we, it just wasn't a part of our life, you know, um, during that time. And I remember on our first anniversary, which um, is also New Year's Eve and is also my birthday, it's like we kind of just put it all together so that you don't forget, <laughs> you know. But we went out to dinner and um, we had to wait like an hour for a table, and so we sat uh, at the um, in, in the lounge area. And we ordered this uh, coffee drink that had a shot of Kahlua in it, which is an alcoholic, you know, substance. And we shared it. So we ordered this one drink between the two of us as we waited for our table. And, um, and, and we, we drank about half of it. And, and here's what happened that night. Um, we got so drunk. No, I'm just, that's not, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. What happened is this, is, is that a night that had started off with so much um, joy and so much expectation and so much, you know, like we're celebrating so much on this one year anniversary and we were so happy and it was just such a thrilling night. Something happened like when a sunny, beautiful day is all of a sudden overcast. You know that feeling that, that you're like, oh, where did the sun go? You know, that's what happened. But it was spiritual. And, and all of a sudden... It just, the joy kind of left and the whole mood changed of the night. And, you know, it wasn't legalism. It wasn't like we did, we didn't break the law. We didn't do, we were both over 21, you know, there, there's no scripture that says you can't do that. You know what I mean? Like we didn't violate anything by doing that at all. But there was something that happened and we looked at each other and without words, without even speaking a word, we both said to one another, that was the last time either one of us will drink alcohol. And it was, other than, you know, if it's in cough syrup or something like that, you know, but I'm saying like have a, a drink or, or whatever that is. We didn't do that because it's against Christ or something or against the Bible. We did it because why, what was the purpose of it? Why, why would we do that? Like, why do we need it? And it was a, just a decision that we made. What fellowship does Christ have with Baal. What, what fellowship does light have with darkness? It's just absolutely unnecessary. And can I tell you something? And, and I'm not saying this so that you'll, you know, mirror that conviction in your own life. That's something that he did between us, for us, in the path that he had us on, uh, you know, for ministry or for whatever, whatever else that the, the cause is, you know. Can I tell you this, though, is that never once in, in the 17 years, 16 years it would be since then, have I ever said, man, I wish we didn't make that uh, that set that up in our in our hearts or in our lives. I miss that, or I've missed out on so much. That has been nothing but a blessing in our lives to be able to look and, and, to, and to not even realize the things that we have been spared, or the things that maybe, I mean, just to be able to look at, at my kids and to one day be able to say to them, you have never opened the refrigerator in my house and seen in, in it that. that. Not that there would be anything, but to, to, I, I'm glad that I'll be able to do that someday. And to be able to just give that to them for whatever it's worth, it, whether it works or not. You know, they might grow up to, who knows, you know, God only knows. 
But my point in sharing that is not to bring us into the, um, the turning to the right hand of restriction and all, all. My point is this, is that we're to be separate, is that we're not to be what the world is. We're not to look like the world. We're not to draw our comfort or our recreation or, or go the places that the world goes for fun. We're to be different. We're ambassadors. This isn't our home. This isn't our resting place. We weren't made for this. That's why we got saved. Because we lived a certain amount of time in the world. We tasted all that it had to offer. And we came up to the surface again at some point in God's mercy. And we said, empty. There's nothing down there. There's nothing in it. And so for us to now be in Christ. And then turn back to that and say, well, I'm going to mix myself back up with it is not only to be drinking of water that can't satisfy, but it's to tarnish the potential of one day hearing him say to us as we enter into his kingdom, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And can I tell you that there's not anything worth living for more than that. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, as we uh, look into these things and we come to the close of our study and, and we recognize, Father, that You've called us to be something and that there's a commission and a mission and a purpose for our lives that goes beyond just finishing the time that we have here and then coming to heaven. And I ask that tonight, Father, for each one of us here, that we would let this text and this passage search us. For the person tonight that's here that might not be a believer yet, that they might hear the Spirit of God knocking on their heart saying, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation and that they would give their heart to you, Lord. For the person here tonight, Lord, that has been compromised, that has received the grace of God as it were in vain and allowed your color in them to be smeared and blended with the world, that tonight would be a night, Lord, where an altar would be built, where things would be laid down, where commitments would be reestablished, and where Christ would be enthroned. And Father, we ask you that you'd search our hearts, that the thorns that choke and make the word of no effect would be swept away, that the rocks that keep our roots from growing deep would be removed from the soil, and that we would be worthy ambassadors of you in our generation and in our sphere of influence. And so we make this our prayer as we come to the end of this text. We ask that your will would be done. Work in us, Lord, for your purpose and in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.